0: I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading! Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll start a new mini-series, giving you brief histories and relevant knowledge on some of the most famous railroads throughout history. been progressing with this podcast, I've long wanted to do an episode where I would give a short description of the major railroads throughout history that have name recognition to longtime hobbyists. But when I started to compile this list, I realized that it was uh, several uh, thousand strong. Even if I were to give a mere 30 seconds to each railroad, my initial list would take over 8 hours to complete. So in the meanwhile, I have decided to start a new mini-series where, in between each regular episode, I will give you a brief history of all of the major railroads in a particular region. However, while I am assembling those lists of regional railroads to go over, I would like to start with a general history of all of railroading to give you context within which all of these more detailed stories take place in. Hopefully, this may inspire you to research a railroad or two as a potential prototype, but if nothing else, you'll now have an operating knowledge of most railroad lines that make it into common parlance. Apologies to my overseas listeners, as I am, despite all my deeply-seated, completely-justified revulsion for the country's current state, post-2016, anyway, and pre-2020, thank the fucking gods, americentric. However, a reasonable case may be made for so being. Since broader North American culture, or at least that which wasn't yellow fever blanketed out of existence by self-centered racist colonial dingbats, largely didn't exist until quite recently, the development of the railroads drove a co-development of North American-associated Western society. Whereas in Europe, cities had been in existence for thousands of years, and railroads thus came along to link together places that were already well-established, in many cases in North America, the railroads helped not only to develop, but to literally create the places to which they ended up connecting. Many towns which were bypassed by the railroads atrophied and were never heard from again, and conversely, the railroad arriving to a place was a certain mark of its importance. Hell, railroads made states, started wars, ended wars, became the literal embodiment of capitalistic greed, and will be our societal saviors by ushering in a progressive future. So, on that note, let's begin. Purportedly, the first railroad in North America dates to the 1720 construction of a French fortress in Nova Scotia. Additionally, during the French and Indian War, a gravity railroad was used by the British at the Niagara Portage. Several gravity, animal, or incline-powered rail-like operations existed in Pennsylvania during the late 1700s to early 1800s as well for hauling coal. However, records for all of these are scarce, making start and end dates, as well as operational details, unresolved. Additionally, some might argue that none of these may qualify as the first railroads in North America because they were all private, single-purpose tramways. The first generally accepted North American Railroad was Quincy's Granite Railway, another animal-powered tramway just south of Boston. Although it was primarily used to haul granite for the construction of the Bunker Hill Monument, it was technically a common carrier, thus earning it the spot as the first official North American Railroad. A small portion of it survives to this day. However, the railway itself was fairly short-lived. The first steam locomotive in North America was the British-built Storebridge Lion, which steamed up in 1829 to work the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company's Gravity Railroad just north of Scranton. Much like most of the early railroads, it was actually a portage for a canal system rather than an independent standalone railroad, but its steam locomotive would definitely cast long shadows on the future to come. The first railroad as we would recognize it today, and the first to actually be chartered as a common carrier railroad, not a private railroad nor a common carrier canal, is the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Chartered in 1828, the first section opening in 1830, it was to link the important port city of Baltimore with the Bitcoin blockchain-esque buzzword of its day, a mythical place called, um, Ohio? I've honestly never heard this term before, and I think it has since fell into obscurity, but my research indicates that it was a catch-all term for an ambiguous place out west, known mostly for transit phobia, mediocre sports teams, and irrelevant universities. Anyway, the founding of the Baltimore and Ohio was in response to the canal-building craze of the early 1800s, wherein Baltimore was feeling left out by the Erie Canal in New York and what became the main line of public works in Pennsylvania to the north, and the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal to the south. Why these industrious businessmen decided to change world history by choosing a railroad and not a canal is a mystery to me, but it probably had something to do with the route's close proximity to the Cieno Canal and not wanting to duplicate infrastructure, as well as the looming mountain passes beyond Cumberland, which would have been, and ultimately proved to be, impassable by canal. So, props to these prescient gentlemen for their legendary foresight. The B&O's groundbreaking ceremony was most famous for hosting Charles Carroll, whose name is never mentioned without also mentioning that he came from Carrolltown, the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence, and his famous remark that, in his opinion, his laying of the cornerstone of the B&O was more important for the country than his signature on the Declaration. Even though it took 44 years for the B&O to reach the Ohio River, it definitely laid the groundwork for all future railroads in the country, if not the world. It was responsible for monumental bridges, the first telegraph, the first major railroad shops, the first American-built steam locomotive, the Tom Thumb known for racing the horse, the first passenger station, the first adhesion railroad mountain pass, the first railroad to cross the Appalachians, and during the Civil War, the first wartime mobilization of infrastructure for military logistics as opposed to mere troop movements. Eventually, the B&O would snake its way all the way to Chicago. As time went on and railroads proved themselves as a concept, the number of railroads and track miles increased exponentially. The 1850s saw the first railroad boom, with nearly 50,000 kilometers of track across the country by 1860. Part of this was driven by the US government's somewhat questionable and colonialist land grant system, wherein railroads building in the uninhabited west were given land in exchange for track laid. This led to the creation of railroad robber barons, who would hoard the land to make monopoly systems. In addition to entrenching wealth inequality, this also stalled technological development, such as prohibiting the widespread adoption of cardboard boxes. True story. The next great railroads in our tale are those which made the first transcontinental railroad, the Union and Central Pacific Railroads. As is oft quoted, these were so exceptional because, at the time, there was nothing like it in the world. The Union Pacific started in Omaha, and built westward across the plains through Nebraska and Wyoming. The Central Pacific built eastward from Sacramento through California and Nevada, making its famous summit through Donner Pass. They both met on May 10, 1869 at Promontory Summit in Utah, a random spot in the middle of nowhere chosen by Congress, which was soon made into a secondary route in favor of a massive trestle and causeway across the Great Salt Lake through Promontory Point to the south. Fun fact, though, the first actual transcontinental railroad wouldn't be until a year and a half later, when, on August 15th, 1870, the Kansas Pacific Railroad laid its golden spike in Comanche Crossing, now Strasburg, Colorado. You see, even though the UP and CP together spanned the continent, They did not actually span the Missouri River, so a New York to San Francisco bound traveler would have to detrain in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and take a ferry across the river to Omaha, Nebraska. However, while the Union Pacific was working on a bridge that wouldn't open until 1872, the Kansas Pacific quietly built a line from Kansas City to Denver, then north to Cheyenne, where it connected with the Union Pacific. Because the KP connected to other river-crossing railroads in Kansas City, it was the Comanche crossing spike that represented the first time one could actually actually travel coast-to-coast by rail uninterrupted, however far out of the way one must go through Kansas to make that uninterrupted trip happen. Ironically, two years after they built a Missouri River Bridge in Omaha, the UP also acquired control of the KP. Either way, the next transcontinental railroad wouldn't be finished until 14 or 13 years later in 1883. By the 1870s, railroads had earned their spot as the dominant form of transportation in the country, if not the world. Although rocky economic climates led to rapid boom and bust cycles, the 1860s to the 1890s can be described as a period of generally consistent and expansive growth of the railroads, the first golden age of railroading, if you will. Peaks of railroad expansion occurred in 1872, 1882, 1887, and 1902, with the peak of 13,081 miles of track being built in the year of 1887 alone. Many of the railroads which grew up as canal portages started to outcompete the canals which they originally served. In all, the canal era was remarkably brief, lasting a mere 30 years or so from when the first major canals opened to when they became entirely superseded. Although horse cars had been around in a limited fashion since the 1830s, the electric trolley car, shameless plug, was actually invented and pioneered at Penn State in the 1870s. As is a common theme, the 1885 World's Fair in New Orleans, called the World, ugh, Cotton, Centennial, was the first public debut of an electric streetcar prototype. One year later, in 1886, Montgomery, Alabama opened the first electric streetcar line, and four months after that, Scranton, Pennsylvania became the first city to completely electrify its horsecar system, earning it the moniker of the Electric City. From there, the concept spread like wildfire, with 110 electric streetcar systems by 1889. This coupled with the recent invention of the safety bicycle led to the first great wave of urbanism in North America. Wealth inequality and robber baroning continued for much of the latter half of the 19th century, led by such people as James Pierpont Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Jay Gould, and James Jeremy Hill. Massive and deadly strikes for progressive workers' rights swept the nation several times, Although the railroad reorganizations, stock buyouts, and acquisitions did lead to greater efficiencies, it also allowed scrupulous wealthy individuals to create cartels of artificially inflated shipping rates, especially to cities served by only one railroad. By 1900, over half of all railroads were controlled by only a handful of businessmen. That and additional practices such as overbuilding and dishonest financing led to the Panic of 1893, the largest depression in the United States to that point. To curtail this flagrant disregard for the well-being of the general populace, trust-busting politicians of the time started several waves of regulatory efforts. In addition to the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 and some tweaks in 1906, the government founded in 1887 one of the biggest names in railroad history, the Interstate Commerce Commission, or ICC. In addition to numerous other tasks such as conducting safety research, the ICC was an oversight board that didn't allow mergers, abandonments, or rate hikes without a compelling reason, thereby preventing unfair business practices. With US railroads reaching a peak of over a quarter million miles of track in 1916, the second golden age of railroads was ushered in. The antitrust regulations forced the railroads into fairer competition, and they could only respond by improving technology or service. Locomotives became larger and more powerful, trains got longer, travel times quickened, and flagship name trains served not only as a form of luxurious modern travel, but also as a de facto advertising campaign for a railroad's freight service. During the First World War, railroads were briefly nationalized from 1917 to 1920 under the United States Railroad Administration, or USRA. Even though it quickly divested itself of railroad control after the war, the USRA stuck around for a while longer under the ICC, continuing research on optimized equipment designs. Nationalization went so successfully that there was talk of officiating it, as is now the case for most European countries, but such efforts were curtailed by a certain October day in 1929. Come the Great Depression, railroads were obviously put in a bind by declining freight and passenger revenues. Although this period is a somber one, many modelers nonetheless enjoy it because it allows you to create very charismatic, homey, and somewhat grimy scenes and equipment. However, the Depression didn't actually curtail the Second Golden Age. Faced with increasing automobile competition, several very industrious railroads started investigating the application and efficiencies of diesel-powered locomotives. Interestingly, however, they didn't land where you might have thought. Whereas most people have an amorphous timeline of EMD's F7 popping up on the market in 1949, then taking over all the steam locomotives in under a decade, development of diesel locomotives actually predates this so-called transition era by more than twenty years. Although many one-off experimental or small diesel locomotives had been tried since as early as 1914, they were always of limited success and never caught on. The history of modern mainline diesels actually dates back to a pair of dueling companies in the Midwestern plains. Our good friend, the Union Pacific, and another Midwestern giant, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. As railroads were losing passengers to automobiles, they decided to compete by offering things that cars could not, such as speed, service, luxury, and, later, scenery. The end result of this one upsmanship was the U.P. and Burlington dueling with competing manufacturers, Pullman and Budd, respectively, to create the first streamlined passenger train sets. Unlike most modern passenger trains, these were short, three to six car married train sets, as in you could not separate one car from another without a crane and a spare set of wheels, with the locomotive consisting of part of or the whole first car. The Union Pacific won the race in February 1934 with its avant garde yellow and brown M10000, which immediately set off on a national tour. The Burlington, making up for lost time, released its distinctive silver Pioneer Zephyr a few months later with a promotional dawn-to-dusk dash, averaging 77 miles an hour and topping out at 112.5 on a non-stop 1,015-mile run from Chicago to Denver in 13 hours and 5 minutes, nearly two hours ahead of schedule. For comparison, passenger trains of the day crossed the same route in 25 hours. The Pioneer Zephyr, too, toured the country. Both train sets were subsequently multiplied, both by the same railroad and by others, as well as several other streamliner types being developed to more limited success, all usually entering service on semi-frequent express routes, usually between major city pairs. The Union Pacific started the city series, with the M-10000 becoming the city of Selina, the m ten thousand one becoming the city of Portland, and the m ten thousand two becoming the city of Los Angeles, among others. The latter two long-distance routes ran on a well-known every-fifth-day departure schedule. Possibly more famous today for their branding, the Burlington's train sets were put to use on the Denver, Mark Twain, Kansas City, Nebraska, Silver Streak, and Texas Zephyrs. The next step to modern diesels was once again taken by the Union Pacific, with M10000's 3-6, which were ordered in 1936. They realized that, rather than have a locomotive married to its trainset, which to be sure does have some practical purposes, they could instead operate their diesel locomotives like normal locomotives, thereby allowing them to be bigger than trainset integrated engines, as well as being able to be taken out of service for maintenance or have their passenger car consists adjusted based on demand. As such, M10000's 3-6 through six were actually two-car power sets which were paired with matching passenger cars, two each for service on the cities of Denver and San Francisco. Thus, the UP not only created the modern diesel locomotive, but also the first AB locomotive sets. If you look up a picture of the M10,000, M10, 1003 Pioneer Zephyr, EMD EA, E5, and E9, you will see the clear progression from the early streamliner designs to those we are more familiar with for early diesel locomotives. But, sadly, these advances could not forestall the decline of railroads. The second golden age of railroading ended soon after the country returned to normal from World War II. The returning veterans came back with an insatiable lust, which resulted in things like automobility and baby boomers. I honestly cannot decide which of those two I hate more. Passenger trains first fell to disrepair, then abandonment, as did many auxiliary branch lines. During this time, most of this loss was caused by a massive governmental subsidizing of other forms of transportation, trucking companies were let loose on tax-built highways, and airlines enjoyed a long period of healthy subsidy. We may never know if railroads could have held their own on a fair playing field, but either way, railroad route mileage shrank with revenues, falling to about a third of their all-time peak. Incidentally, during the same time, nearly all streetcar networks succumbed as well, but for possibly even more sinister reasons. Most of the original streetcar networks had gotten trackage rights on their city's streets by agreeing to pay for improvements or paving for the roads on which they operated. But, all of a sudden, cars were pounding the roadways in ways that horse carts never did, all while stealing away paying passengers. Most of the small government-minded politicians of this time were disinclined to take on their city's transit systems and promote holistic, sustainably grown cities, and as such, many cities lost their transit systems and became disgusting cartopias of infinite suburban sprawl. It also may or may not have helped that, suspiciously, General Motors, the automobile manufacturer, started buying up streetcar systems in over two dozen major cities during this time. Hmm. The 1970s and 1980s were the definitive low point for railroads in North America, possibly even lower than the Great Depression. Bankruptcies and large-scale abandonments were rampant. During this time, the ICC was turned into the Federal Railroad Administration, or FRA. Part of the original intent of the ICC was to prohibit wanton abandonments of rail lines because, at the time, railroads were the only reliable form of transportation. As such, even though they generally allowed abandonments with a prior approval process, the ICC nonetheless forced railroads to keep some unprofitable passenger trains and branch lines in operation even though they were hemorrhaging revenue to automobiles. Recognizing that railroads were no longer the only lifeline for most communities, the ICC was reincorporated as the FRA under the newly formed Department of Transportation and stepped back in its duties, allowing railroads to abandon lines more freely. Similarly, in 1971, the National Passenger Rail Corporation, or Amtrak, was also formed to take over the then-unprofitable passenger business and eliminate duplicate services while guaranteeing through government backing that communities along the route would still have opportunities for intercity travel. But, once the regulatory rollbacks initiated, railroad abandonments proceeded en masse. For these reasons, not quite as many modelers tend to model the 1970s and 80s because, at some point, charismatic grime becomes… well, just… grime. A side effect of these bankruptcies was a long series of acquisitions and mergers. Many railroads combined with their neighbors to provide uninterrupted service over long distances and to gain efficiency from eliminating overhead, such as by closing duplicative shops or routes. Many people dislike this era because the loss of so many of the so called fallen flag railroads led to a dramatic reduction in attractive distinctions, like colorful paint schemes or unique operational practices. A widely known series of failures resulted from the merger between the bitter enemies of the New York Central and the Pennsylvania railroads. The combined Penn Central lasted for less than eight years before a catastrophic bankruptcy, happening at the same time as that for many other railroads in mid-70s Rust Belt, New England, and Mid-Atlantic states. To save the floundering companies, in 1976, the U.S. government formed the Consolidated Railroad Corporation, or Conrail. Resulting from the takeover of the Penn-Redding seashore lines, Central Railroad of New Jersey, Redding-Penn Central, Lehigh Valley, Erie-Lackawanna, New York-New Haven and Hartford, Lehigh and Hudson River, and Monongahela railroads, much of the country from Massachusetts to Illinois and Quebec to West Virginia was now bathed in the distinctive blue diesels. Conrail chugged along for a few years, then started to gain footing in the 1990s. Even though many modelers initially exhibited disdain at Conrail for stealing their favorite railroads, the genuine heart of the operation and its underdog story, as well as brilliant colors, have slowly thawed the hearts of hobbyists, and it is now a popular modeling subject. When the operation started to make a profit again, the government divested itself of the vast majority of Conrail's lines in 1999 by splitting it roughly in half between the East Coast's two other merger-resultant railroads, Norfolk Southern and CSX. Even though most of it was sold off, Conrail is still around today in the form of Conrail Shared Assets Operations. The affectionately nicknamed Little Conrail operates terminals for both CSX and NS in New Jersey and Detroit, which would have been too valuable to give to either railroad alone. In the meanwhile, mergers in the West resulted in BNSF and our old friend, the Union Pacific. Finally, in between the four American giants, the Kansas City Southern grew to just barely qualify as a Class 1 railroad. The rest of North American Class 1s are rounded out by Canadian National, Canadian Pacific, which I can never tell apart, and Ferromex. Even though it was a rough time for the industry as a whole, something interesting started to happen in the early 1980s with urban transit. Many cities, being choked both figuratively and literally by automobiles, were desperate for a way out of the automotopia they had boxed themselves into not thirty years before. Although some legacy streetcar systems had survived the culling, such as in Boston and San Francisco, most of them were ingloriously wedged into an awkward, indeterminate state of operation. But then, in 1981, San Diego became the first city to design a modern rail-based transit system from the ground up. Even though they still call it a trolley, what they actually invented was the concept of a light rail, a form of transit that sits somewhere between a streetcar and a subway, but is actually much faster and more versatile than either. Incidentally, in the time since I wrote this script, I actually learned that Calgary, Alberta, Canada was the first city in the world to come up with a de novo light rail project, opening in 1978, three years before San Diego. However, I would still like to give the vast majority of the credit to the San Diego light rail system, primarily because the Calgary light rail used pre-existing rail corridors. Additionally, it took Calgary 14 years to make any extension to their light rail line, and 37 before they opened another transit line. However, in the case of San Diego, it took them a mere 5 years to open up their second light rail line, and they didn't use pre-existing rail corridors, indicating that they had thought this through long in advance as a new network-based transit system unlike anything else in the world. Three years later, Pittsburgh joined in the fun by revamping its streetcar system into a similar grade-separated fast-commuting system. Two years after that, Portland, Oregon started on what would eventually become one of the largest light rail systems in the country, with five lines totaling almost 100 kilometers. In 2001, Portland did it again by opening the first modern, European-inspired streetcar. This caused a wave of downtown circulator streetcars that is still sweeping the country, even going so far as to overtake Motor City itself, Detroit. From the first 8 modern streetcar and light rail systems in the 1980s, 9 more would open in the 1990s, 15 in the noughts, and 14 in the 20-teens. Today, having a light rail system is one of the strongest markers of being a city on the rise. According to data I have averaged from the past 5 years, you will find a light rail system in 68% of the most educated cities, 80% of the cities most popular with millennials, and 73% of the fastest growing cities. Excluding Baltimore, Buffalo, and St. Louis, which are at the bottom of those respective lists, none of the country's fastest-shrinking, least-millennial, or least-educated cities have modern transit systems. By the way, fact check. Under President Obama, 14 such systems opened, averaging 7 per term. Mr. Rump, on the other hand, has 4. Let the data decide which party is better for American infrastructure. This all indicates a behavioral shift in the way people view railroads. After their brief, abusive dalliance with the automobile, Americans realized that, though auspiciously giving freedom, it molassified their freeways, bloated their strip malls, corrupted their communities, and quite often killed them outrightly. This was true of freight as well as passengers. Starting in 1993, railroad ton miles and revenue experienced an almost uninterrupted rise until the Great Recession in 2008. Several railroads even started triple-tracking certain high-volume areas and building new yards and termini, while state departments of transportation started to even the gap between entirely taxpayer-subsidized highways by offering to pitch in on freight railroad bottleneck improvement projects. Railroads were also able to improve their competitiveness with the introduction of intermodal containers, which allow you to quickly and seamlessly transfer freight from ship to train to truck to customer without becoming the dreaded brake-bulk cargo. It is thus that we have entered the third golden age of railroading, which we are still in today. For this, and let's be honest, Google Maps-related reasons, modeling modern railroads is quite, quite popular. Well, we've just gone through almost 200 years of railroad history in North America, in what, 30 minutes? I hope that, with this episode, you now have a better idea of the development of railroads throughout history, and that I have whetted your appetite to learn more. Next miniseries episode, I'll start by working my way counterclockwise around the country, region by region, telling you about the major railroads that have existed in those areas throughout history. If you have a question or comment, would like to join our Facebook community, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is tin lizard a streamlined passenger train thank you so much for listening and happy modeling